It's that time again. It's Greek for the week. I'm Chris Palmer. Let's open our Bibles and get right down to the original language, the Greek. God bless you. It is the Greek for the Week podcast. That's right. The guy from Instagram is now on podcast, going from one minute to now 20-minute full-length episodes right here on your favorite podcast platform. You can download us anywhere, and make sure that when you do, you share it with a friend and say, hey, this guy's educational, this guy's devotional, it'll help your heart, it'll help your mind. We don't just want to exercise our hearts, we want to exercise our minds so that we can glorify God with every part of us. It's good to add education to your faith so you can know more precisely what God has said so you can have more confidence in the things that God has said. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 9. And I want to talk to you in the next few minutes about the existence and the reality of hell. Now, I know it might not be the most uplifting message. There's probably more messages that would encourage you and make you feel a little bit better about yourself. But we can't just go around passages in God's Word and not preach those things because they're not the funnest things. We have to go exactly where the text is leading us and consider the things that God has put in His Word. It says here in verse number 9, well, you know what, let's back up to verse number 5 and read the whole thing so that we provide ourselves with a context. This is what it says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, I want to focus particularly right here, put our stakes down in verse number 9, because this is what I'm going to be using here to prove that the Apostle Paul most definitely believed in the existence of a conscious, eternal place of damnation where the unjust souls of those who have rejected the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ will go when they die. And then after this, I want to go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29 and see what Jesus had to say about that. And before we actually do our exegetical work, I want to talk a little bit about hell. Now, this comes from the Evangelical Alliance Commission on Unity and Truth Among Evangelicals. We'll just give it an acronym and call it ACUTE from this point forward. ACUTE says... The classic mainstream evangelical position about hell is that hell is eternal conscious punishment. Now, I've been preaching God's Word for about 12 years, full-time, and if you want to go back, I've been preaching God's Word for, well, it's been over since 1999, so that's been 19 years since I first preached my first sermon. Be as it may, I've always taught and preached that hell is a real place, and you know something? As I've been studying God's Word objectively since 2002, I've never seen otherwise. All throughout the New Testament, I've seen indications that the authors believed in it. And you know, that's the way that you have to approach Scripture. The way that we put together any type of systematic doctrine is we look at what did Jesus have to say about it? What did the Gospel writers have to say about it? What did the Apostle Paul have to say about it? Did John say anything about it? Did James say anything about it? What about Jude and his epistles? Did he mention anything? The writer of Hebrews? What did he say? And so on and so forth. What about Peter? What did Peter have to say about it? And then we put these things together and we make sense of all of their ideas and thoughts and inspired writings about hell. And that's what we do to develop a systematic doctrine. We don't just take one isolated text as a proof text and say, well, you see, this may not exactly be talking about hell. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 
what Paul said about hell and what Jesus said about hell. And in looking at what Paul said about hell, we're going to see that there is an eternality, eternality about hell, eternalness to hell, and also that hell is literal. And then we're going to look at Jesus and see what he said to determine that hell is in fact a place of torment. Before we go there, it's necessary to do this because let's consider some statistics. Now, if you go to Pew Research, pewresearch.org, you can pull these statistics up and you might find them a little bit shocking or surprising. When it came down to surveying Christians, now these are not people that reject God. These are Christians. Those, if you saw them at the mall or walking into the gym or maybe on your work site and they said, oh, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus and I go to church and maybe I even give to my church and I serve in charities. If you ask them if they believe in hell, this is the percentage of them that do not believe in hell. They believe in Jesus. They believe in perhaps even different aspects of the inspiredness of God's word, the infallibility of God's word, but they would tell you they don't believe in hell as a place of suffering. Are you ready? Between the ages of 18 and 29, you'll find that 16% of people surveyed, of over 5,200 people surveyed, said they don't believe in hell. Now, it could be worse, but it gets a little more shocking when you find that 30 to 49-year-olds, a total of 31% didn't believe in hell, just reject the idea all out and flat out together. And then between 50 and 64, 30% of people don't believe in hell. It's about the same. And then 65 plus, you'll find that 24% of them don't believe that there's a state of conscious eternal suffering for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. People with these kinds of positions would usually say that hell is seen as a conservative doctrine or something that conservative preachers like to preach or that it's an ancient doctrine or that it's old and that there's now a progressive way that we've progressed towards and because of things like globalism, which has united people of all different types of faiths together in an unprecedented way, as well as postmodernism that has challenged the absoluteness of the traditional doctrines that we have, that maybe hell is outdated or maybe it's a way that we can look at it differently so that we don't have to put everybody in hell. And, you know, those types of things, globalism and postmodernism, has made hell really an unpopular and an intolerable doctrine amongst a lot of people, and especially, especially, listen, especially millennials. They don't like to talk about it. And now there's some people, of course, that will say, well, yeah, I believe in hell, but they don't teach it. It's on their website, but you never hear about it in sermons. Maybe they give an altar call. That's good. That's a start. But we need to warn people as believers and say, hey, hell is real, and people that reject Jesus, they go there. If we don't do that, we are not preaching the full gospel. And our objective as preachers, I remember my pastor taught me this, he once taught me that your objective is not to be popular. Your objective is not to be accepted. Your, obje your objective as a minister is not to go around and to be Mr. Popular. Your objective is to declare the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of declaring God's message, whether they like you or whether they don't like you. And you know something? I've gone places, and they've liked me. I've gone places, they may not have liked me. They may not have liked the message. You might not even like the message that I'm sharing right now. And guess what? I don't care. <laughs> I like you, I'm thankful for your listenership, but there are some things on this podcast we're going to talk about, you may not like it, but it's good and it's beneficial for you to listen to it. So what do people that don't believe in hell, what exactly do they believe if they call themselves Christians? Well, there's a number of things, they may have a, a hodgepodge of different ideas, and may, they may not even know. Sometimes you say, well, what do you believe? I don't know, I just I just don't believe in hell, I don't, I don't accept that. It makes It's an embarrassment for you to say, I don't know if you've ever been someplace and I've had this happen before. Uh, someone said to me they were not of the Christian faith. Their their spouse was a Christian, and they, they knew I was the pastor. They came up to me, <laughs> and they, the first question they asked, it was brutal, I tell you. It was just 
really brutal. They said, so, pastor, you know, when they say it like that, you know it's coming. It's a, some type of personal attack. Uh, make it like you're assaulting them. They said, pastor, so you think I'm going to hell? Because they know the gospel. They knew what I believed. And uh, the answer is yes. But I said to them, well, the, wife, the way your wife prays, I don't think that, that you're going to make it to hell. I think, I think you're going to be saved. And he said, oh, that's a good answer. And he laughed. Well, I used a little bit of, uh, <laughs> used a little bit of, of, of charisma to get myself out of that, maybe a little bit of charm to get out of that, uh, because I knew his intention. But that was also another way of saying, yeah, I, I think you're going to go to hell. Uh, it's going to require your wife to pray and God to move upon your heart and you to receive what the Holy Spirit is saying for you to avoid that. But I definitely believe that if you reject it, that's, that's what's there for you. And he knew that as well. Uh, and so um, that's why he asked me the question. But be as it may, those that reject the idea of hell and are Christians, they may believe one of three things. The first thing they might believe is something called universalism, which essentially says that everybody's going to be reconciled to Christ or already is reconciled to Christ. So you don't really need to receive the grace of God. It's just there. It's available for you. And just like Adam sinned without your own volition, without your will against it, and we all got sin passed to us, uh, Christ Jesus came and he died, and we all received salvation without even having to do anything. But that's not necessarily true, and we're not here to defeat only universalism, okay? We're here to talk about the existence and the reality of hell, but universalism believes that and essentially is rooted in the fact that there's not going to be a, a hell that's full of people. It's going to eventually be empty because in our passivity, we still receive salvation. We don't have to make a, a decision about Jesus, and we're all going to be reconciled to God, okay? We don't believe that. Okay, next, you see something called post-mortem evangelism, which is the Church of Latter-day Saints, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They believe this, the Mormons. They suggest that, well, even if you didn't receive the gospel here, there's the possibility, there remains a possibility for people to be evangelized in the next life, to hear the gospel and make a decision about Christ after death. Well, we reject that because Scripture doesn't teach that. And next we see that there is something called annihilism, which the, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believed, and that is that those people that are wicked and those people that are sinners, they get totally annihilated, and they cease to exist, even their spirit ceases to exist. There's no resurrection of those that are wicked, and as a result, there's not going to be a place of conscious eternal judgment and torment for the rest of eternity. But we go through the Word of God, and we see that Scripture's not teaching this, and the Greek does not teach this. Now, let's go and do our exegetical work in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. You know why you're turning there. That's always the most difficult book for me to say. When you listen to Greek for the week, and I, I pull a Scripture from Thessalonians, I think, oh man, there's going to be some redos because I, I can't get my tongue and my lips around that word. Be as it may, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This is what it says. Again, they, referring to wicked people that reject Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, this is really good, good context in the Greek, a good scripture that we can work with because we see some interesting exegetical things that, that, are, uh, that stand out when you're reading it. And the first thing that we'll notice here is that it says the punishment of eternal destruction. Well, let's just define these words quickly. Eternal here, the Greek word ionion refers to eternalness. It's literal, means forever, means on and going, ongoing, doesn't end, has no end. It's not, pun we say in Greek, puncticular, puncticular, which means that it's not just referring to a point in time. It's temporal, not temporal, but temporal, which means that it refers to time. And in this case, time without end, it is going to go on and on and on. There's no stop to this. It's like a stop clock that clicks, has a beginning, and just keeps on going. It's like the universe is just expanding. How long is the universe going to expand? Just going to keep 
on expanding. I watched a documentary on an airplane that was talking about the expansion of the universe and how the planets that are furthest away are moving uh, from, from where they believe the, earth, the universe began. They move the fastest, and the ones that are closest to where they believe it began, they move the slowest, and so on and so forth. But the point is, it just keeps on expanding. It's eternal. The way it moves is eternal. That's what this word is referring to. And then it says here, destruction. Now, the Greek word destruction, olatheron, is not talking about annihilation. It doesn't mean to be gone and disappear. That's, that word is never used in that sense. It's referring to something that once had a value to it and no longer has a value to it. It's like if you ruin something. Picture cooking, and you have a pot, and it was a good pot, but then one day you just burn something, and now the pot, you can't get it off, and it, the gristle's stuck on it, and you burn the pan, and you can't cook with it anymore. It's useless. So what do you do with it? It's destroyed. You throw it to the side. You get rid of it. It becomes of no value. It's gone. You don't destroy it, but it just lays in the, in, in the pan or lays in the cupboard. You never do anything with it, or you put it away in the trash, and it's just in the trash the rest or you put it in your garage someplace, and it's out of use. That's what destruction is talking about. It means to ruin. That's probably the best definition of the word. And then we see the way it's functioning here. It's interesting because there's something in the Greek called nouns that are in apposition. Now, the word here, apposition, is a Latin word, and it describes two things that are put right next to each other side by side. Picture Two homes that are built on the same block. One house and then the next. Side by side. They serve as neighbors. And that's what we have in verse 9 with the noun decaying, which means punishment, and the noun destruction, olatheron. And when two nouns are in apposition, they take the same case, which is the accusative case, which means that they're the direct object of here, the verb suffer. So it's saying here that they're going to suffer punishment, eternal destruction. And when their nouns in apposition, okay, the noun that's in apposition, which is destruction to the first noun, punishment, piggybacks off of it or goes to further describe it. So this is what it's really saying. They will suffer the punishment, namely destruction eternal. That's literally in the Greek. They will suffer the punishment of destruction eternal. And when nouns are in apposition, what can you do with those is that you can reverse the order of them to say the exact same thing. So you could literally say they will suffer, okay, eternal destruction, namely, which is the punishment. So it's saying something two different ways, though it's the same thing. And this is a very, very obvious way of writing. It's a very intentional way of writing. It's a very forthright way of writing to say unmistakably that those that reject Christ will suffer. And not only will they suffer, to be more specific, it's going to be punishment, and it's going to be eternal ruin forever and ever and ever. If you were uh, a member of the church in Thessalonica, you would read this, and there would be no question in your mind whether or not there was a hell that was conscious and eternal. And so now, understanding this, it's important to see what did Jesus have to say about hell. And we can add on what Jesus said about hell to the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul to make sense of and get a better picture what this place of hell is going to be like. And the best place we can go is Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 29. And here Jesus is talking about what happens after death. And he's warning people how to order their lives. And the context from verse number 22 shows that Jesus is talking about the afterlife when he's giving these warnings about the consequences of our life now, moving into the afterlife and cautioning us to abide by the laws of God. You know, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, it says that he went up into the hill to teach. What theologians tell us is that Jesus did this, and they put this in here and recorded it like this because it shows him as the new Moses 
completing the law, being the one who gave Moses the law, and now making revisions to that law. And so Jesus is tightening up the law in some sense, in some regard. He's saying it's not just a matter of your actions. It's also now a matter of your heart. What is in your heart and what is your motive for living your life the way you're living it? Not just about action. God looks at the heart. He always looks at the heart and he pays attention to what we're doing. And remember, your heart and your motives are going to have an, uh, an influence on what happens to your life after death. And when you're in Christ Jesus, your motives should be right and they should be pure and they should be holy and they should be according to the Word of God, and that's what God is looking at, but thank God He gives to us the Holy Spirit, who's the one that changes the desires and changes the affections of our heart. I can tell you that when I got born again, the first thing the Holy Spirit gave me was a heart to do God's will, to despise sin, and when there was times where I sinned, I grieved over it and was had godly sorrow for it because my intent, my heart, was to do the will of God. And so He's talking about our heart, and He says here, if your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. Look what he says here. For it's better that you lose one of your members, one of your body parts, the one that's causing you to sin, the one that's causing you, in this case, the eye that's causing you to have sin within your heart, then your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, the Greek word here, thrown, is an interesting word. It's blepite. And this word here is not talking about laying somebody down, it's an aggressive throwing. It shows that there's judgment that's being wrought probably against the person's own will, against the person's own desire. If you have to throw them into hell, it's probably a struggle that they're putting up. In other, word, in other words, it's not someplace that you want to be going. My parents never had to throw me into Disney World. I remember going to Disney World and couldn't wait to go there. You don't have to throw me into the beach because I want to go to the beach. You have to throw me... <laughs> When I was first starting preschool, my parents had to throw me into preschool. I didn't like school when I first started. I love it now because I've come to appreciate uh, education. But when I, f I remember my first day of preschool, on the next, the, the next uh, more, uh, evening at dinner, that night at dinner, I told my parents, I have to go back? You mean I have to go a second time? And I had to go kicking and screaming because I didn't like it. They had to throw me in there. And I remember I used to cry, and I didn't want my mom to leave. <laughs> There's a personal fact about me. I used to cry and hold her leg, you know, and sometimes they would let her stay with me uh, until they saw that I was blending in with my friends. They had to throw me in a preschool. Well, they have to throw people in hell, kicking and screaming. So obviously it's a pretty bad place if you have to throw or blefete them into hell. And then the word here for hell, which is a derivative of the word Gehenna, is a word that used to describe a garbage dump that was outside of the, <coughs> of the city and the walls of Jerusalem. Now, remember, if you're an Israelite, a garbage place is a place of abhor abhorrence because they had ceremonial laws and laws of cleansing, and they really, really put a high premium on, a premium and emphasis upon being clean and staying away from that which defiles. So it was a place that it was abhorred, and nobody liked it. They didn't even want to look at it. They wanted to stay far, as far away as possible from it. They didn't want garbage in their city. They put it out to the side so they didn't have to look at it. And there was this nasty place full of disease, it stunk, it was awful beyond description. Now, I remember I used to work for a restaurant as a short order cook, and one of the things we had to do at the end of the night is we had to empty the grease out of the deep fryer, and then we had to take the grease and we had to dump it in a special uh, recycling bin that was outside, and so the truck could come pick it up. 
And I used to despise having to do this because it was disgusting. There was grease everywhere. It stunk. It smelled. And it was right next to the dumpster. And, and we used to uh, go back and forth trying to get out of this duty and say, hey, if you do this for me, um, or if I do this for you, will you take the trash out for me? Will you take the oil out for me? Will you please do it? Because nobody liked going around it because it stunk. And so you can see the uh, description here. Jesus is saying there's a place like that that exists. And it's in the afterlife. Now, liberal theologians will come along, and they have come along, and they do, and they say, well, Jesus never referred to hell. He was referring to a garbage dump. And so, no hell exists. It's a garbage dump that exists. Well, people do say that. And you can look it up on the internet, and you will find it, that people are saying it's not an actual hell. It's a garbage dump. Well, this is an exegetical fallacy that's called confusing the referent from the sense, which means that they're so focused on the referent, which is the garbage dump in and of itself, and Gehenna being a garbage dump, that they neglect the sense of why that word there is being used. Jesus is not using it in a literal sense. He's using it, okay, in a very uh, metaphorical sense to say this is what hell in the afterlife, or this, when, when you allow sin in your heart and you don't check it, and you don't do anything about it, when you don't seek God for the help of the Holy Spirit, and you reject the grace of God, and this is from Paul's letters, and the mercy of God, then you're going to end up in Gehenna, or you're going to end up in a place that has Gehenna fire. It's going to be like that dump. And from Paul's letters, we find out that it's eternal place of judgment and torment. And so understanding this, it calls for us to have a response. How are we going to go about directing our lives and our conduct, our ministry, with the idea and the understanding that the Word of God is very clear, especially from Paul's letters, and from the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, and the teachings of Jesus, that hell is a real place, in fact. Number one, there's a couple things we can do. Number one, we have to warn using the love and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that you need to go out there and be one of those people that stands on the street corners and tells people they're going to hell. I would encourage you not to do that, really, unless the Holy Spirit was telling you to do that. Because oftentimes, people that do that, though their heart might be right, they may not be employing the most wise way of doing it, and they may not be coming off with the love that they should come off with. I'm not saying it's not effective and it hasn't been effective, but I'm saying that you shouldn't just do it because other people have done it or that it's, it, it's what you need to do is just go out there and be one of the Old Testament prophets and tell people that fire and brimstone is coming. Be led of the Holy Spirit. Keep it in your mind that the world is lost and that people whose jokes you laugh at, people who you see on Instagram, they don't know Christ, they're going to go to hell, and pray for those people, and ask God to fill your heart with compassion so that you can lead those people to Christ. Next, you have to understand that the spirit of the age, the antichrist spirit that the Word of God talks about, is not stupid. And I believe one of the ways that he's going to affect our culture, and that he's going to inundate us, and that he's going to numb us, is by not getting us to reject our belief in God, but get us to accept all beliefs in God. Not necessarily that we don't believe in anything, is that we believe in everything. And that's one of the dangers that we have in this postmodern society and that we're starting to see in the Christian church is that there's this acceptance that we can just take other people's beliefs. After all, you know, what if we're wrong and what if they're right? Who's for us to say that they're wrong and, and we're right? What if we're wrong and they're right? Or what if we're all right? You know, it's like that bumper sticker that says coexist and it shows the different symbols from world religions. Well, that's what a lot of liberal-minded people want they want us to coexist, but if you take the real true message of Christianity, it can't coexist because of the exclusive claims of Jesus. They don't understand that 
You can't have Christianity coexist with other religions because it is in and of itself exclusive. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, period. We'll look at that in the Greek at some point, but it's extremely exclusive. It's extremely offensive to people, okay, that don't follow Christ, and that's the way it's got to be. I believe in getting along with other religions. We shouldn't fight other religions. We should be able, however, to preach what we preach, okay, and hopefully people aren't offended by it. That's what we need to do. And so, you know, I was looking at uh, Instagram the other day, and there was a, a celebrity that's on there right now. Tremendous, tremendous influence. They oftentimes post that they're reading Christian literature, which I'm really happy about. It's better than reading bad and secular literature. Boy, I tell you, I'd love it if they posted about Greek for the week at some point. But their profile made me caution, stop and pause and reflect for a second because it said that God is zest and God is light and God is energy, or something like that, and that's what he is. I thought, no, God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the person of God made manifest. God, man, all came together in Christ Jesus. He's the God-man, 100% man, 100% God, and Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. That would have been a better way of saying it, but that's too exclusive for a lot of people that want to be religious, and that doesn't go really well with the culture today. And so people don't make claims like that or would they ever want to say that there's a hell that exists. But these are the things that are in the Word of God. Not everything in the Word of God is going to float people's boats. And not everything in the Word of God is going to get you likes on Instagram and get you shares on Facebook uh, and go viral. But we have to understand that's not the goal. The goal is not to be popular. The goal is not to be widely accepted by the world. Jesus was very clear in in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, I believe, that says the world will hate us because they hated him. That doesn't mean you be abrasive and in your face and go looking for it, because if even if you share the message and the gospel of, of Christ in love, you're still going to be hated. That's what we have to understand. Even when you share it with love, you'll still be despised. And you know something? As good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we have to soldier on. We have to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be affected by the globalism and the post-modernity that we see in society. We can't be bent by liberal theologians that say that hell is an embarrassment to Christianity. It's disrupting the order, the global way that we're starting to think today. It's disrupting the progressiveness of society. Stop preaching that. Stop saying that. Listen, if we believe the Bible, if we believe the Word of God, we cannot allow, okay, that culture to affect the way we preach the gospel. We can't be products of what I call pop culture theology, which just says, let's all just feel good and do good. Let's preach the good sides of Jesus and not the warnings of Christ. No, we need to preach the full gospel, and that is that hell is real. I don't apologize for it, but if you're listening to this podcast, you've never given your heart to Jesus, I want to tell you today that hell is real, but you don't have to go there. God has given to unto us the love of God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it, that the world might be saved through him. And so believing on him, trusting that Jesus can take your sins and carry them and has carried them through his work on the cross will get you and free you from the wrath of God, take you away from the wrath, will bring you into the family of God, and God will put the Holy Spirit into your heart to make you son and daughter of him, give to you an inheritance and a promise and a hope that's everlasting, 
a place with God. Jesus says, I, I'm leaving that I may go prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. You can receive that and escape Gehenna, hellfire, that eternal destruction and punishment that we're told about in the word of God just by believing on him. We don't escape it through liberal theology. We escape it through faith in the name. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So if you feel that burden, that weight of sin, today you can be free. Pray this with me. Heavenly Father, I declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he came to set me free from all of my sin. And today I receive Jesus into my heart. Free me. Give to me eternal life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and save me from the power and the reality of hell. Thank you for helping me to escape the wrath of God. I thank you and I praise you for it. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, friend. I want to encourage you. Keep on studying the word of God. Keep on trekking with me on Greek for the week. We love you. God bless you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us further, you may visit us on the web at lightoftoday.org. God bless and good studying.